This episode is sponsored by Echo. Hear clearly, care confidently. Learn more at echohealth.com. That's E-K-O health.com. And use code JSP for $50 off any stethoscope. Just Some Podcast Media. The thoughts and opinions on Just Some Podcast are of the hosts and guests and do not represent the views of organizations that employ them or they volunteer for. They are also not responsible for spontaneous black holes or nuclear wars that may occur. You have been warned. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun-filled and exciting episode of Just Some Podcast. This is Tom. Hey, this is Ben. And Tom, thanks for letting me out of the closet. <laughs> you are welcome, sir. I forgot about that. You were in there for quite a while. <laughs> four or five days, I mean. Four or five days minimum, yeah. Unfortunately, when we get to our main topic, I was not able to attend the interview because I had previous engagements. And so Tom locked me in the closet, apparently. I have found it is really entertaining for me when Ben is not available or there on a show with me, like if I'm the guest or something, to come up with wildly outrageous lies about why he wasn't able to attend and an attempt to really embarrass him and make him laugh a little bit when he hears it. So, And I never tell him. He just hears the podcast and then hears a million people talking about why he was trying to sell pygmy zebras in Australia or something like that. And he's like, what? So it's always a fun time for Ben to find out why he wasn't on the show. But how are things in your neck of the woods, Ben? Not too bad. We're doing a lot of back to school physicals, sports physicals, all that good stuff. Getting these kids ready to go back to school next week. I, as a parent, am counting down the days until my children go back to school because then it gets back into a normalcy of routine that I can't wait for. I agree. The only thing here is, uh, well, it's hot. I mean, it's not Kansas hot, well, but it's can, hot. Lately, it's been nice. The last three or four days, we're down in like the 80s. It's Yeah. <laughs> okay. But that's what I'm saying is here we got into the low 90s and I'm like, oh my God, I'm dying. So it's uh, it's been warm, nothing too bad, but it's been really good. Same, just busy. Everyone's getting ready to go back to school. and. We have had a few cases of monkeypox in this area. And I do mean by area, I mean a large swath, like nothing remotely close. But hearing it on the horizon makes me go, oh, boy, here we go. <laughs> like another viral infection for everybody to argue about that doesn't need argument. You either have it or you don't. You either protect yourself or you don't. It's really pretty easy, but just preparing myself mentally for that set of hoops to start jumping through. I understand, yes. So, Tom, I before we get into our story, I had a drug rep come in this week, and he posed an interesting question to me, and I want to pose it to you and to our listeners to see what their thoughts are. I know the question. I bet I know what it is. Okay, what is it? Let's hear it first, and I'll tell you if it was or it wasn't. I'm betting it probably is not. The question that he posed was... Why is COPD undertreated as opposed to like something like diabetes and hypertension? And I gave him a few answers. And so I'm just kind of, I want your thoughts on this. And I'll tell you my answers if first, if you'd like me to, while you're formulating thoughts. I would assume COPD is because the initial onset of symptoms can be pretty minor or go under treated because they're not readily acknowledged or accepted as COPD. They're like, oh, well, you're just out of shape. 
you know, you need to start running more, quit smoking, which, by the way, they should have done a long time ago if, in fact, they have COPD because of smoking. But, yeah, that's why I would think. So the answers that I gave him, and that's kind of similar to what I had said, my first answer was something with diabetes, hypertension, things like that. I have tangible proof that what we are doing is helping, whereas with COPD, I don't have a special test that I can do. I mean, I had this barometry, but we're not going to order spirometry on everybody. So there's nothing tangible with it was my first answer. I then said, well, I think some of it is because while diabetes and hypertension may be self-inflicted with obesity, I feel like there's a stigma with COPD because the vast majority is going to come from smoking or exposure along those lines that it almost feels self-inflicted. And so there's almost like an embarrassment of, or not an embarrassment, but a, well, I did this to myself. So I just I deal, deal with, with it. it. I made my bed. I lay in it. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I just thought it was an interesting question. And so I thought I wanted to pose it to you. So what did he say? He didn't have an answer. He was actually, I mean, he was generally asking me like, <laughs> I thought, on, Oh, I thought you went like, this was the <laughs> drug rep version of now you see me. Now you don't like, Cha-cha. Now he's got some kind of cool answer to sell his drug. And I was like, okay, well, what's the answer? <laughs> no, he was just legit asking. He's like, why do you feel like, you know, what are your thoughts on why this is undertreated? And that's, well, and that's, but that's the same reason I feel diabetes is undertreated and hypertension is because initially they don't, they don't see it. Now, granted, like you just said, treatment can provide some tangible evidence if they choose to, oh God, I even, can't believe I have to say this nowadays. If they choose to believe the science that they're looking at, which some people don't. Ugh. But the point is, usually in the beginning, you know, a new diabetic's like, well, I was just peeing a lot. I didn't think about having diabetes or I was hungry a lot. I didn't think about having diabetes or hypertension. I just had a bunch of headaches. I didn't think, I, you know, so I think all of these disease processes in the beginning can be the silent killers that we call them. And that's why. And I don't think COPD falls out of that range. I just think COPD can be sneakier because eventually, you know, <laughs> diabetes is going to catch up or hypertension is going to catch up and you're not going to be able to hide from it. By the time you're in late stage COPD, you've told yourself a million excuses and they all seem plausible. You know, I had bronchitis. My doctor said I got bronchitis. I get it every year. And for some reason, everybody thinks I get the same thing every year on a schedule and I try and tell them they don't. But that's the type of thing that they do. And so that's why I would think. Interesting. Well, I said, I want to turn over to our listeners. Why do you think, or do you think it is? Maybe you were wrong and we are just vastly underheating COPD in our particular areas, although I don't think that's necessarily it. <laughs> I can't wait. I can't wait to see those answers. I think you're just a terrible NP. I'm like, well, you know, I mean, <laughs> touche. So, <laughs> there you go. So, All right, Tom, let's jump into our story that you may have missed. And you did not miss this one because you actually sent it to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So what do you know? Every once in a while, Ben, every once in a while, you got to get up pretty late to compete with that because I'm terrible at sending you stuff. So, yeah. Okay. So story you may have missed. Ohio judge rules that Walmart, CVS, and Walgreens must pay a combined $650 million for damages related to the opioid crisis. U.S. District Judge Dan Aaron Polster ruled that over the next 15 years, approximately $306 million must be paid to Lake County. And approximately $344 million must be paid, paid to Trumbull County. All three companies were found liable for their role in the opioid epidemic in these counties last November. And the lawsuit, which was initially filed in 2018, was part of the federal 
multi-district litigation created to address the manifold claims against opioid manufacturers and distributors. The county has alleged that the pharmacies, quote, abused their position of trust and responsibility, unquote, as registered dispensers of controlled drugs, and in doing so, quote, fostered a black market for prescription opioids, unquote. Tom, I know you and I have talked about a little bit about this, but what are your thoughts? To be completely fair, this is one of those times where I have not read enough information to have fully formed an opinion on this specific case. Fair enough. But but since people are listening to this and that's the entire reason they chimed in was to hear my opinion about this, here's what I do think based off what I've seen so far is, first of all, I don't like it. I mean, I'm anti-opioid, you know, and honestly, I live in Ohio. You know, I mean, that's what I've been saying since we did those episodes, you know, a couple of years ago is I have seen, witnessed and felt the impact of the opioid crisis. What I don't like about this particular case, and again, there might be some legal reasons, you know, that they were the prime, you know, plaintiffs or defendants, I should say, in this case. But unless – if there was a specific pharmacist that was, you know, filling way too many scripts or something like that, and they went after that pharmacist, I'd be good with it. But to say that an organization, and one as large as those three are – to say each one of them is somehow individually responsible to track, monitor, you know, and do the job that really the provider should have been doing and say, now you are responsible to do their job plus your job, I, I just think is a very bad precedent to set. And I really don't understand how they were held liable. Like I said, this may be a case where there are specific legal issues that were factored into this. And then, okay, then they're fair game. But on the surface, it looks like they're kind of getting thrown into the ring with the opiate manufacturers and the pill mills that were dispensing them. Well, and I think it's also the big pockets. Is That's my personal thought, and that's maybe inappropriate, but I mean, that's my personal thought is let's go after, you know, we're not going after the mom and pop pharmacy. Yeah, we're going after Walgreens. Yeah. Uh, he, I've seen that, actually. I think CVS or Walmart's lawyers said that. And honestly, I would say they're right. However, this, and I've had to use the word however six times so far, so let's stop that. But what I would say is the lawyers are mad that the other lawyers did the lawyer tricks that they set up and now used against them. Well, Tom, you're right. Spokespersons for Walmart, CVS, and Walgreens all said they plan to appeal the ruling. Walgreens says, quote, the facts and the law do not support the jury verdict last fall and do not support the court's decision now. As we've said throughout the process, we ne never manufactured or marketed opioids, nor did we distribute them to pill mills or internet pharmacies that fueled this crisis. Walmart released a statement saying, quote, that the plaintiffs in this case sued Walmart in search of deep pockets, unquote, and claimed that, quote, the trial was engineered to favor the plaintiff's attorneys and was riddled with remarkable legal and factual mistakes. They went on to say that instead of addressing the real cause of the opioid crisis, like pill mill doctors, illegal drugs, and regulators asleep at the switch, Plaintiff's lawyers wrongly claim that the pharmacists must second-guess doctors in a way that the law never intended, and many federal and state health regulators says interferes with doctor-patient relationships. And CBS said that it is a ruling is a misapplication of the law, says, quote, we strongly disagree with the court's decision regarding the county's abatement plan, as well as last fall's underlying verdict 
pharmacists fill legal prescriptions written by DEA-licensed doctors who prescribe legal FDA-approved substances to treat actual patients in need, unquote. So that, that's their take on it. Well, first, I'm always right. So I don't know why you even had to say that. Second of all, again, I the part of this I am being highly amused about was hearing all these lawyers bitch about the other lawyers doing the lawyer things. Like, it's like, wait a second. Maybe what you should be talking about instead of starting to point the finger at regulators, which I hate after all the stories we've done. I hate anytime someone brings up state or federal Congress. And why aren't they doing something about this? Because they're morons. Okay. Every story we have almost almost every story we have done with a state representative or a US House of Representatives, Senator, whatever, they're morons. They don't know what the fuck they're talking about. They should have nothing to do with what we're doing. And if they are involved in laws, then they should only be doing it at the behest or advice of a committee of nothing but providers that have been appointed. Having said all that. Sucks to suck CVS, Walmart, Walgreens. I don't know what to tell you. I agree that I think that this was wrong, but it sounds to me like a jury didn't. And yeah. We'll see what the appeals show, but that was our story. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't. Yeah, I can't wait to see what the appeal is. Because I again, I agree with them on this sounds like a lot of legal twisting. But then also, like I said, it cracks me up because I'm like, oh, the lawyers are mad that they got outlawed. So that's really what's pissing them off. Well, speaking of lawyers, Tom, on the other side of our break, you actually got to sit down and, and have an interview with a lawyer. <laughs> oh, my God. I was going to say, I literally forgot that's what the rest of the story was about. So, yeah. Yeah, that's great. Again, I didn't say anything bad about lawyers, Mike. I said something bad about regulators. Okay. So, if you're a congressman, too, I'm really sorry, and I will apologize to you. But, yeah, the rest of them suck. So. So, yeah, Tom did get a chance to sit down and visit with Mike, who's an attorney at the Chapman Law Group, about prescribing opioids and how we can effectively do that with uh, as PAs and NPs. So, Tom, anything you want to say before we uh, take a break and throw to the interview? A lot of good information. It was also – and we're going to say this during the episode, but I would – tell you again right now first of all each state's slightly different on certain things so make sure you know your individual and specific state laws and regulations and your hospital policies and procedures those are all key factors in all this okay so just because you heard this and you can't go anywhere and say well mike and tom said that's not going to hold water this is more like a guideline like some helpful information that you should remember while you're doing charts or talking to people He's a great guy. There you go. I thought it was a really good interview. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you learned something. And yeah, yeah, I hope we I hope we talk to him again soon. Tom, how's that Lipman 3M Core Digital Sets Cup treating you? It is fantastic. I, again, led a student. It wasn't even my student. It was like a student was tagging along with me for a little bit and just let them use it. And in that short period of time, They've already texted me and said, how do I get one of those? So, again, the proof has always been in the pudding for me. And if you put this thing on and you hear it and the difference it makes, I really don't think there's any comparison. I I would agree with you. It's amazing. One of the things that I like, because I don't know if maybe in my truck, because I had to do some work at another clinic, if something got bumped on my Echo or whatever, but... I just didn't have as crisp and loud a sound as I, I needed. It has the little volume buttons right on it, right there on your stethoscope. So just an easy 
bump up a couple of notches and I was right back to where I needed to be hearing heart sounds. I love the noise cancellation, 40 time amplification. It, it truly is a wonderful piece of equipment that once you use it once, you're going to want to use it every single time. If you want to find out more, go to echohealth.com. It's ekohealth.com. Use code JSP. It gives you $50 off your order and let them know that we sent you. I want to talk about our next sponsor, especially for just a second. And I didn't tell you, so that's why he's got a worried look on his face, if you guys could just see it. So as we talked about at the beginning of the show, and I'm not going to beat a dead horse, I got the pretty significant eye injury. And what came along with that is I cannot take anything, well, no NSAIDs for pain. And as we've talked about on the show, we did a whole episode. I have gout. Well, you know, because I wasn't having a good enough time not being able to see out of my left eye and still can, you know, dealing with, I may lose it. Like people don't seem to realize the first couple of weeks, it was still, hey, you could still lose your eye, like not just your vision. We could take your eyeball out of your head. And so I was a little freaked out and bleeding was a significant problem. And I could not take insets. And as I just alluded to, I have gout. So let's put two and two together. I got a gout flare-up. What's the number one thing you take for a gout flare-up, Ben? Insets. So here I am in excruciating pain, and I cannot take any insets. And I was waiting to get a hold of someone because the next thing is steroids that I could take. The only thing I had for about 24 hours was CBD stat products. And I just want to say specifically from the bottom of my heart, thank you. Now, was I still in a lot of pain? Yes. But the ability to bear the amount of pain I was in, I truly believe was significantly, you know, contributed to by CBD stat. Like their products really helped me bridge that gap. And so from a heartfelt thank you from the bottom of my heart, I knew I wanted to do this on the show and just say thank you to your company and ben's going to tell you the important stuff but really it meant a lot to me to like and i know i say this stuff all the time but i'm telling you i just went through this and it was and if you've never had gout it i try and tell people is every time you take a step hit your affected area with a hammer as hard as you can like so let's say you think it's your big toe hit your hammer bam crush your big toe now take a step do it again that's what gout feels like and so to be able to actually be able to sit down and not cry from being in pain was significant. So thank you, CBD Stat. Well, I don't really got nothing else to say other than I'm going to give you all the information that you need for it. So if you're in healthcare, they love their healthcare people. They're going to give you a permanent 40% discount. That's a permanent 40% off. You just go to cbdstat.care slash healthcare. You fill that form out and they're going to give you that 40% discount permanently. But they know that some of our listeners are not in healthcare and they want to help you out too just because you listen to our voices. So you go to cbdstat.care, put everything in your shopping cart that you need. You go to the checkout, you put in code JSP20. That's JSP20. They're going to give you 20% off just because you're listening to our voice right now. That is cbdstat.care. All right, everybody. Well, welcome to tonight's show, and we are going to be interviewing Mike Staples. He is a very special guest of the show. And, well, Mr. Staples, why don't you introduce yourself and let everybody know what we're going to be talking about tonight? Sure, Tom. Be glad to. My name is Michael Staples. I work with the Chapman Consulting Company. We're a national healthcare compliance organization. And tonight we're going to be talking about uh, 
prescribing in general, specifically nurse practitioner, physician assistant prescribing. But we're going to be really focused on the control substances and making sure that your license, your career is protected when you do prescribe those control substances. Yeah. And as an educational, or we try and be educational healthcare podcast, this is something that's really near and dear to both Ben and I's heart. You guys are going to notice out there that are listening that the melodious voice of Ben is suspiciously absent from this interview. And that's okay. I locked him in a closet. He backmouthed me. Um, you got to be dominant. And I had to show him who was really running the pack here. So He's not here and there's nothing he could say about it because, you know, he's not here. So Mr. Staples and I had a great conversation pre-show. He's got an awesome background. And if you are listening to this and you're a healthcare provider, you're going to learn a lot. And even if you think I don't need to know that, I guarantee you that when an expert comes on the show to talk about things that you need to know about fine details or some, you know, very helpful suggestions, it would behoove you to listen to this. So first thing we want to talk about, we talked about the big thing and controlled substances. Now, Ben and I have mentioned this on the show. I'm in Ohio where controlled substances are a big topic for providers. So what are some of the big things, not only in prescribing, but in documentation that are huge pitfalls that you see a lot that are easily avoidable? Like what are some big things that we can just start off right off the bat? Don't do this. The first thing is, Tom, is non-personalized medical records, especially when it comes to controlled substances. You, When you're going to prescribe a controlled substance or prescribe a, a durable medical equipment device or even do a procedure, you need specific personalized data in that chart specific to that patient. So if a patient comes in and broke his, and I'm just going to use generic terms, broke his back from a sledding in, you know, incident at Perfect North Slopes in Indiana or snow tubing incident, you know, whatever. Then That's then oddly that, specific. <laughs> yeah. Then that needs to be in the chart, you know? Okay. So in, in return, you know, you make a diagnosis, you know, whatever your diagnosis is broken back, you know, sprained, you know, whatever. And you decide to use a controlled substance. You know, the first thing you're going to do is make sure that you're documenting that he's tried over-the-counter products. He's tried alternatives. So, you know, so if he tells you, listen, I've, I've ate ibuprofen every day for a week and it's tearing up my stomach and it's not giving me any pain relief, then you want to document that, you know, the patient has been, you know, eating ibuprofen every night by the handful and, you know, now complains of stomach issues, et cetera, before you even get into the control substance. The biggest mistake people make is a lack of documentation. You know, they just rush to to get through the patient. So one of the things I remember I've always been told, and I still stick to it now, is I try and avoid subjective from the patient when they're like, it only hurts a little. Like I just, I, I usually put patient reports pain. Should we be putting, I mean, outside of quotes for very specific incidences, should we be putting the patients reporting mild pain or should we just put patient reports pain? Because I was always told I can't tell your scale, so I shouldn't be putting mild, but I can't put pain. I think it's because pain's so subjective, and everyone has a different tolerance of pain. I think you need to put down exactly what the patient is telling you, because you know, and even the pain scales are helpful. You know, as far as you know, there's a lot of government experts out there that'll say if an if a you know, opiate is not giving a patient at least 30% pain relief, then it's a failed opiate. It's a failed opiate trial. 
So, you know, if you've got a patient that's coming in every visit saying, I've got a 10 out of 10 pain and you've got them on, you know, oxy 15s, you know, you know, three times a day, four times a day, and they're saying their pain's 10 out of 10, you know, number one, you should be doing a little bit of clarification, you know, addressing the patient, because a lot of times it's just an educational thing. And a lot of patients think that if they don't tell you they're in extreme pain, they won't get the medication that they need to function. So you kind of got to educate that patient and say, we know the worst time possible, your pain's a 10 out of 10, 10 out of 10. But when I give you this medicine and you take this medicine about an hour after you take this medicine, what is your pain level? You know, and most of the time, you know, you're going to hear them say five or four once they're educated. And that's something you're going to have to document in the charts as well. You know, you have to show that the medication is working for it to be valid. You have to show that there is a a greater than a 30 percent you know, decrease in their pain. Cause if they're not, then, you know, and I'm not a doctor and I'm not giving medical advice. I'm just basing it off of my experience with compliance and reviewing thousands of charts and testifying in court, you know, on standards of care, administrative hearings with the medical board. When I used to be a medical board investigator, you have to be able to show that the medication is working. And, you, and if it's not giving them 30% relief, then, you know, you need to try something else, you know, whether that's an opiate rotation, a different treatment, et cetera. So first of all, you brought up something very good. You're not a medical provider and that's good to clarify. However, again, for the people listening, he is an expert in his field. Okay. So while he is not a provider, again, this is one of those cases where somebody does not have to be a medical provider to give us expert opinions on how to do our job. So again, I, while I'm glad you clarified it, this is one of those cases where, but you are an expert at what you do. So I'm hoping that they're listening to it. Yeah. It's, you know, and, and I give advice to keep people out of trouble. You know, I, I like, that's, you know, doctors, nurse practitioners, or PAs, they take care of us. So I try to take care of them. Well, something else you said, though, I want to make sure I'm very clear and, and not, nobody has to do anything ever any certain way. But for instance, like if you have a traumatic orthopedic injury, I tend to follow like Ottawa rules. OK, so, you know, can the person bear weight? Can they, you know, move the joint? Can they articulate? Is there redness? Is there swelling? Blah, blah, blah. Right. OK, so my point is when we are dealing with a controlled substance. Are there specific things that besides the pain scale and the effectiveness of the medication, which let's be fair, they should have been documenting anyways, but let's say they weren't, they learned something great. Are there other things that we need to make sure that we are documenting when we are either prescribed, we're thinking about prescribing for a first time pain medications, or this is a patient with chronic pain and we're keeping them on them. What are there rules that we should be following for that? Well, number one, you need to make sure that you're documenting function or lack thereof and activities of daily living and lack thereof, you know, when it comes to prescribing, because ultimately that's why you're going to prescribe a controlled substance because they can't do something, you know, they, because of their pain, they can't work because of their pain. They can't help their grandkids because of their pain. They can't sleep at night. You know, they can't function in or do activities of daily living. They can't take a shower because they have so much pain. You know, they can't get on the ladder to paint. It's very important that you're very specific in the medical records when you're talking about function and activities of daily living, that you take what the patient says and transcribe that to the medical record to show a very specific incident, because it's very hard for a government expert or even a malpractice, you know, you know, attorney to get on the stand and attack something that's patient specific. You know, anybody can say patient has pain uh, and he can't function. Patient has pain, can't do activities of daily living. 
Well, when you get on the stand as a prescriber and they start attacking you for this, are you really going to remember this patient out of your other 2000 patients? So when they say, doc, what's, what function couldn't they do? What activities of daily living could they not do? Uh, and you're up there going, uh, 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 they're going to assume you're guilty of drug trafficking, that you basically you just wrote that down to cover your tail. But if you specifically say, you know, Rob works as a painter, broke, you know, hurt his back without the hydrocodone, you know, five, three, 25s twice a day, he cannot function as a painter. You know, that's a lot harder, easier to defend. Well, it is. And honestly, I won't go into the whole story because it's not completely germane to this, but I specifically as a rookie police officer on the stand remembered something about my first armed robbery case, but I didn't put in the report. But I mean, I vividly knew I remembered that detail. And I will assure everybody that is listening to this, the attorney for the defendant made sure everybody knew that information was not in the report. And how did I remember it? And while Mr. Staples here is explaining this in a very nice tone, it is ass wrecking to be on a stand in front of a jury trying to explain why you don't think you're a moron to this jury. So please avoid that. Yeah. yeah, uh, Unfortunately, you know, if it's not in the record, they're going to say it didn't happen. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, yeah, that's always going to be the go-to is if it's not in the record, it didn't happen. So that brings up an interesting point then. What are some things, again, I, I don't know how to word this, but are there things we should be not? Like, are there things that people tend to document that get them into trouble that are extraneous, that they are not needed? Like, are there things that we should avoid documenting that can actually cause a problem? Unless you're doing something improper or wrong okay you know there's not really any anything that you know i've personally seen in a chart you know and i will tell you this you know i have seen uh you know doctors write that you know patients currently my girlfriend you know and, and that'll get you in trouble very that, that'll cause a problem yes <laughs> so, so yeah you definitely don't want to do that or a patient gave me back five pills for my back pain you know i mean i and i kid you not <laughs> I, I kid Sorry. you not these, these are oh. things that you know I've seen as an investigator, you know, I've seen doctors talking about their sex, sexual relationship with a patient, which is illegal in every state, you know, to prescribe to someone you're having a sexual relationship with. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, besides the common sense things, that's basically criminal admissions. I don't think you can document too much. Okay. Uh, but the thing is, you know, you, your notes should have all the basics. And, and I'm, I've skipped a lot of basics because, I, you know, I, I know your listeners are, yeah. you know, educated, you know, like, you know, you got to have good vitals. You know, you got to, like I said earlier, you got to show that they've tried alternatives, you know. And if they tell you that they've been to physical therapy three times and, you know, it just always makes their pain worse. Because I'll be honest with you, like I've had numerous knee surgeries and every time I have went to physical therapy, my knees got worse. Like it's never gotten better by me going to physical therapy. Never, you know, <laughs> no matter so, what that orthopedic surgeon told you, it yeah, wasn't I, and I, you yeah. know, and I'm telling you right now, if I had another knee surgery and they're like, you need therapy, I would not go. Does that make me a drug diverter? No, but no. I, you know, I just, I, but based on my experience, I've never had a good outcome with physical therapy. So I think we need to document everything the patient says. And, you know, it, it's a really about covering your tail, you know, in, in covering your license, you know, when you document this stuff, but you have to be personalized and you have to, you know, have a compliance plan in place. You know, the Affordable Care Act, you know, mandated compliance plans and hardly any healthcare provider has it. 
And compliance plans, basically, you have a compliance committee at the office, compliance officer, and it's just somebody, it'd be an extra ears and eyes to look over your charts and look over any complaints or any prescribing. And really that helps if you're going to prescribe controlled substances, I would strongly recommend you have a compliance plan. You know, you can set these up yourself or you could, you know, hire someone like myself to come in and train the staff and do it, but you can also do it yourself. I mean, it's not extremely hard, but it is something that, you know, requires some work, you know, to get set up. So is there any differences in advice, and I can't imagine there are, but we'll cover this because we do go around the country and some states have independent practice and some states have uh, supervising authorities. Like where I'm at, I have to have a physician that I talk to, I submit, you know, charge to for review. My question then is basically when we have to add that level of supervision in there, which I'm not opposed to, does that change any of our calculus as far as things we need to be aware of in documentation? Like I did, I do speak to my supervising authority about you know, these cases, if I did, or is that something that's really not necessary because it's already clear we have a supervising authority or should I document that we spoke to another uh, provider? In states that require supervision, you know, I mean, most states are collaborations now. Yeah. No, but I guess I should say that it it is a collaborate, but it still says supervising collaborating authority. So I'm like, okay. And, but the important thing is to make sure that you know, in the collaboration agreement, it's spelled out that, you know, you're, you know, you can treat pain, you know, you can prescribe control substances as long as it's in accordance with the rules and the laws of the state, because not every state allows it. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. I don't mean specifically like the contract. I do know what you mean. What I'm saying is like, let's say I speak to Dr. B about this patient's pain. And Dr. B says, well, I wouldn't give him, I wouldn't start at tramadol. I would start with ibuprofen. Is that like the type of conversation that should be recorded somewhere in the treatment or is that extraneous? Like they don't need to know that other supervising authority was involved in this patient's planning. If, care. if you went to that supervising or collaborative authority to get advice on what to prescribe and they, they state that, then I think that's pertinent information that needs to be okay. in the chart. If you went and talked to the collaborating physician afterwards and he says, look, next time I probably would just gave ibuprofen and tried that first, then, you know, obviously that would be something that should be, you know, peer review, you know, set up a peer review at your Mm -hmm. office to kind of protect that from getting out. But that would be something that, you know, you would discuss privately with the physician. Yeah. Well, again, this is just one of those, some states aren't going to have that issue and some states are. So I'm just trying to cover all that for it's, you know, Ohio's, you know, is pretty, uh, pretty flexible with MPs and yeah. PAs, but you go to Kentucky and it, it's a whole different ballgame. Yeah. And, and I guess maybe I should have prefaced everything we're going to say is not every state's going to be the same. So uh, when Ben I and I know. talk about Kansas or Ohio, certainly as Mike just said, you know, Kentucky, you know, is going to be a vastly different area. So make sure you know your state rules, regulations, laws, your health systems, you know, parameters and guidelines. But ultimately, these are just some things we're trying to do to protect you. And that's very important to emphasize, Thomas, that, you know, you should go to, your, you know, your nursing board association, your PA associations, your, you know, state nursing board website, your state, you know, physician assistance or a licensing bureau website. And you should review, you should sign up for updates on rules and laws. Because, 
they don't make it a point to tell you guys the rules and the laws. They just expect you to know every single one of them. And most of the time, you know, they're this thick, you know, <laughs> you know, who reads those? You know, I was probably, I, yeah, I was probably the only, I, I, that's the truth. I, I was probably the only medical board investigator that ever sat down and read all the medical board rules from front to back, because I'm like, if I'm going to go out here and be an investigator, I want to know everything about it. That's what helped me, you know, transition from, you know, being an investigator to helping physicians is because, you know, I research and I look at everything. And a lot of doctors don't, a lot of PAs don't, a lot of MPs don't because, you know, they're too busy taking care of patients the way they should be. Yeah. So, so we, we talked about documentation and obviously I agree in, I agree. Like I'm telling the expert how to do his job, but I'm just saying like, I would assume documentation would have been the number one that's just pounded everywhere. And are there other big, huge pitfalls though, that you see repeatedly? And you're just like, how the hell does this keep happening besides uh, documentation? Yeah. It kind of all goes back to documentation, but diversion and aberrant behavior, you know, what they, what the government refers to as red flags with patients. There's such a lack of documentation with red flags and, you know, a lack of, you know, not only addressing the red flag, but, you know, developing a plan of action for the red flag or, you know, some type of discipline. And I'll give you an example. You get a patient in your office, you know, elderly patient, husband and wife, the wife goes to Dr. John down the street. The husband comes to you. Okay. The husband is on hydrocodone. The wife's on oxycodone. And we're talking low dose here, five, mm-hmm. 25, maybe twice a day. Okay. You do a drug test like, you know, you're supposed to, you do a random drug test and, you know, these patients are going to be low risk because, you know, it's very low dose. And, you know, unless they've had some type of aberrant behavior in the past, you know, they're going to be low risk. So you're going to do about one a year, you know, for a low risk patient. So you do a drug test and he's showing small amounts of oxycodone in a system that his wife was prescribed. So you say, Mr. Smith, you know, I've got your results for urine tests here. You're positive for oxycodone. And, you know, he's, you know, can you tell me, you know, what happened or what's going on? And he says, well, Tom, I, you know, I get up in the middle of the night sometime and in really bad pain, I can't sleep. Me and my wife keep the medicine in the medicine cabinet, you know, together. I guess it's possible I grabbed the wrong medication. You know, I don't take it on purpose. You know, I don't do anything. And obviously he's going to test positive for his medication too. So you say, okay, well, you know, we have a controlled substance agreement, which is very important, you know, with controlled substance prescribing is to have an agreement, you know, with your patient on the do's and don'ts. Always make sure those con- control substance agreements say may and not that you will. So, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what I'm saying is, you know, don't write in there, you will dis- discharge them if they test, you know, have a bad urine result, then you don't, then they're going to use that against you in a hearing. Okay. So you always want to use words like may it, because that allows you to use your medical decision-making, which you should be able to do because that's your education. You know, you have to have good medical decision-making and you have to be able to exercise that and not lock yourself down, you know, on something, on an agreement. So first thing you're going to do with Mr. Smith, you're going to counsel him and on the control substance agreement that he signed this agreement, you know, and that maybe they should separate their medications. You know, he should have his locked up here or, at least move them to a different bathroom, et cetera. So this doesn't happen again. You're also going to counsel him that on the increased risk of overdose, because he's using two opiates now, you want to give him some warnings that, you know, Mr. Smith, I've got to let you know that there's an increased risk of respiratory depression because you're using two opiates. 
you know, I don't want any harm to come to you. So therefore, you know, in the future, you need to be very careful because, you know, you could accidentally overdose yourself and realize it because you've already got hydrocodone in your system and you use oxycodone. Okay. You want to give them an Narcan for safety if you don't already. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, if you prescribe a controlled substance, an opiate, everyone should get Narcan once a year. You know, would you say like for the patients though that refuse it? Because I mean that does happen when we say, hey, you know, this is so just document they refuse it. Is that that's, suffice? Best thing, best thing to do to, is you know most of it's electronic prescribing now in, in most states. Is go ahead and send the prescription to the pharmacy along with the opiate. Tell the patient what it is. Tell the patient when to use it, when not to do it. Mm-hmm. And if they have hesitations or they say, I'm not a drug addict, say, well, it's not just for you. You know, what if Lord forbid someone got in your medication, a grandkid, a child yeah. next door. Or you go outside and there's someone that overdosed on your sidewalk, you know, and, you know, you want to have this medication because it's life-saving and it doesn't mean anything against you. It doesn't mean anything against the prescriber, you know, for giving it out, but it's just good medicine, you know, to make sure. And it could save a life if not the patient, someone else's. So even if it's a low dose opiate, I always tell my prescribers to give out a Narcan every single time. And they should renew those Narcans yearly, along with the control substance agreements, because the control substance agreements have to be re-signed yearly. Okay. So, and one other thing, so we we have our patients do all the stuff you were talking about. Mm-hmm. One of the questions I've had, and I've had people ask me, and I'm like, I don't know the answer. So let's, is when we have that, and it says you may be tested, you're on drug screens, et cetera, et cetera. My question becomes, is random okay, or does every patient... Like if I said, okay, every patient in June, you're going to be a cup. Obviously that defeats the purpose. Now they all know. So my question becomes is like, let's say I go, okay, I'm going to pick randomly. I have a hundred prescriptions for Oxy. I'm going to randomly pick 10 of these and have them pee the next time they come in the office. Is that sufficient? Or is the government really going to go, no, bro, every person that signs one better have a pee test. Like which one am I going to be looking at? really can't win with the government. <laughs> yeah, I was say, so I'm damned if I do, damned if I yeah, don't is what it looks like. Because uh, yeah. here's the thing, you know, like the physicians that have their own labs, you know, yeah, they, you know, if they urine test and they say it's too much, you know what I mean? If they don't have their own labs, they'll say it's not enough, you know? Yeah. yeah. But honestly, Kentucky has probably one of the best rules, laws, considerations for urine drug testing. And I use it as a model, you know, in every state because you have to urine drug test based on risk stratification and whether a patient's low, moderate or high risk. Okay. But that determination, whether they're low, moderate or high risk, you can either do by an opiate risk tool, you know, like Lynn Webster has an opiate risk tool that, you know, questionnaire they score. You can do something like formal like that, or you can go off the morphine equivalent dose. You know, you could say, Anything 30 and below is low risk. Anything 30 to 60 is moderate risk. Anything over 60 is high risk. Or if they're co-prescribed, you know, an opiate with a benzo or an opiate with a sleeping pill, then they're high risk. risk. Yeah. But you have to, no state, and the government doesn't either, has a formula for how you determine risk stratification. It's left up to the prescribers at their medical discretion. But just, uh, yeah, it's like, you have to have this, but we're not going to tell you how to do it. Yeah. And, but if you don't do it the right way, we're going to come after you. I'm not going to tell you how <laughs> yeah. to do it, but if you don't do it the way I'm imagining that I won't tell you about, I'm going to punish you for it. Yeah, then you're a drug <laughs> trafficker, you know. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. Oops. So, so it's very important 
that you come up with a, a, a risk stratification policy and just make it a policy, you know, put it in writing that, you know, that, that this person's low risk, this person's moderate, this person's high. So if they're low risk, you're going to do a, a, you know, at least one urine drug test a year, you know, more if they show signs of aberrant behavior, like they come in appearing intoxicated, you know, or they say that they uh, lost their medication or, you know, you get a phone call that, the patient is selling their medication from a family member overusing, then obviously you want to do more than one a year on that patient. Moderate risk, you know, you're going to do at least two a year and high risk, you're going to do four a year. Okay. And you're going to make sure that risk level is documented in the chart, you know, because if they come in and they say, well, you, you know, you're billing way too many urine drug screens and you're like, well, this patient is on, you know, 80 MEDs, which, you know, Anything over 60, I categorize as high risk just because, you know, there's increased risk of overdose and safety and, you know, and everything like that. Then I do four based on my policies, you know, four at random. And that can be four, you know, two back to back, you know, one, you know, one in January, one in February, then another one in, you know, October, another in December. But, you know, that's up to you. It's, but, you know, to me, it, it should be random unless the patient exhibits a sign of diversion or aberrant behavior. And then you want to do it right then and there. Okay. And we, so we've talked about documentation. We've talked about major pitfalls. Is there any other overwhelming things that you wish with all your expertise in this area that prescribing authorities or providers would know, heed, listen to your begging and pleading as this is your chance at a PSA to try and right some wrongs. So what is it? Is there anything we left out so far? Uh, obviously, everything goes back to documentation. But I, I, outside, I, of that. I, I think outside of documentation, the biggest thing that I can say to prescribers is sometimes you have to listen to your medical knowledge and ignore your heart. Thank you. Okay. You know, and I call it the devil angel scenario. You know, obviously, the devil is the heart that's saying, oh, this is a good patient. You know, I believe this patient, you know, even though everything is telling you that this pain is not legitimate or that this patient doesn't need this you you listen to the devil and the angel is your medical knowledge that you paid hundreds of thousands of dollars to obtain you know it's based on science it's telling you like this doesn't make medical sense why are you giving them this controlled substance and you ignore the angel for the devil so my biggest advice is listen to your medical knowledge and do not listen to your heart because that's how bad patients manipulate prescribers because most prescribers get into this field to help people. Well, guess what? That leaves all their heartstrings exposed. And it's not a bad thing. It's not a it's not a bad trade or anything like that, but it allows you know people that and it's a very small patient population. You know, I would probably say less than 5% are actual true manipulators, you know, that, that are manipulating you to get the medication. Some people really need it. And most people really need it, honestly. But, you know, listen to your medical knowledge. Don't allow, allow them to take control of your heartstrings. You know, and a lot of times what they'll do is they'll talk you up as a prescriber. They'll, you know, they'll say you're the oh, yeah. best you're the best doc in the world. You're the best nurse practitioner in the world. You're the most handsome, you know, like, you, you know, you're, you're the best looking <laughs> doctor, you know? Oh, flattery will get you everywhere with exactly. me. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> exactly. And that's what, and that's what they do. And that's what they say. And it, you know, it, it's scary, but you know, I was, I gave a talk a while back to a large hospital group in Cincinnati back when I was still with the state. I told him, I said, listen, when I would go into a bad doctor's office and, you know, he would say, 
you know, you're the nicest investigator I've ever had, you know, or, you know, wow, you're really nice dressed. You're really good looking. And I said, I knew he was guilty. <laughs> you know, I just knew it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He's trying to throw me uh, off the set. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, so, you know, it's just stick to your medical judgment, you know, obviously have compassion, you know, have, you know, have empathy, but ultimately if, if you're having a conflict in, in your brain between your heart and your medical judgment, go with your medical judgment. And unfortunately this is an area where, I think a lot of people, especially the nurse practitioners, fall into this because they came from nursing. They came from bedside where it's ground into our head. You do everything to help these people. And I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm just saying I also, as longtime listeners know, I have my law enforcement background. And I came into this profession a little more cynical and jaded than apparently most. And so somebody could be like, oh, you're you got really big muscles. I'm like, okay. (laughs) <laughs> I don't know what you want, but you're not getting it. Like, yeah, like automatically the door shuts down yeah. clank. Like, no, nah, okay. So we've talked yeah, about a lot. Let, of- let me give you some naproxen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. I can only take stuff that starts with a D. I'm like, oh, it must be discharge. So that's what you're getting. So, that's great. Uh, yeah. I, but, like but, I said, but, but, you know, Tom, most nurse practitioners and doctors don't come from the background like me and you fair. came from. And it's sad because, you know, a lot of them are just naive and, you know, I've helped a lot of practitioners over the years kind of open their eyes and, and I opened their eyes not to not prescribe, but just to more safely prescribe. Well, and that's why Ben and I were really glad to have you on the show is because first of all, this is something we have to do. This is part of our lives. We want to do it. We want to help people. And like you said, you know, like, you know, I have family members that are on pain medication. Absolutely. I understand the necessity. And as much as I hate people being on long-term chronic pain meds, because just because see the side effects, the long-term side effects, sure. it's nothing, but I don't want them in pain. So I'm in this weird position of, I want to help you, but you know, I'm in this position where I know what I'm doing to help you. Right. It, it, there's all these rules. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want you to get in trouble. And so that's why it was so important. And we were so glad to have you on the show. You know, it, in every state, make sure every visit you're checking the PDMPs. You know, whether in Ohio, that's ORS, or yeah. Kentucky, that's Casper, or Michigan, that's MAPS. You know, you should be checking that reports. And you can have delegates in pretty much every state. You can have an MA be your delegate as long as you trust them and, and know they're not going to run their coworkers or run a celebrity <laughs> through there. But, you know, and it's sad but true. But, you know, a lot of people don't know it's a felony. You know, if you're not, you know, in most states, it's a felony. And it's also a HIPAA violation. So, you know, you definitely want to run the PDMP and document that in the chart. And one thing you have to do is you just can't just run the PDMP reports. You have to document in the chart whether they're compliant or not. It can be a simple checkbox, you know, in your EMR that you create that just says, you know, PDMP was reviewed, compliant, mm-hmm. non-compliant. And if it's non-compliant, then you have a little couple lines that you can type a note in. So I guess I do have a question because I'm sure. a big PDMP checker. I make a little note, like I, we have a timestamp button. So I hit timestamp. I put PDMP checked. If, is that sufficient or? Checked is not sufficient be- because it, that doesn't show that you reviewed it. That just says that you allegedly looked at it. It's kind of, okay. it's a very, it, it's a very vague generic statement like okay. that it was checked because, you know, but if you write in there, what was on that PDMP, whether it was compliant or non-compliant, then they know for sure you checked it. 
Okay, so if I put in there the last time they filled it was 26 days ago, so I went ahead and filled it with do not fill before this date. So then they can track, oh, he saw exactly when the last yeah. time it was filled and when that's sufficient or yeah, not sufficient. Yeah, that's more than sufficient. Okay, and, okay. and that really shows that you're serious about, you know, safe, compliant prescribing, which really, you know, when experts, you know, for the government, you know, whether it's a medical board review or malpractice review or whatever, when they see stuff like that, you know, they know they're dealing with a professional and they know that that, that person is not a drug trafficker, that that person's trying to take care of their patients and doing the right thing. Well, so, I mean, even I just learned something because what have I been putting? PDMP checked. I just assumed that when I clicked that, there was some kind of electronic footprint. Like, oh, well, clearly he clicked on this button at 1848 hours. Well, well, the thing is, it can be argued in court that, you know, that because, you know, a lot of PDMPs are intermingled with the MR where you can get in the yeah. MR, just click. Yeah, and that's how mine be, is. So yeah, and it can be argued that you opened it, but there's nothing that says you read it. You know, fair but, enough. Yeah. And that's the issue. You know, the other thing you're in drug testing, you know, make sure that you're putting in the chart that you're ordering the test. You know, that's a Medicare requirement that, you know, that you are ordering this test. You know, some people, you know, I and we've seen it lately, like where people have gotten trouble for just having their MAs order the tests, you know, like come up with a random section, you know, but mm -hmm. you have to, like any other diagnostic test that prescriber or practitioner orders, you know, you need to put in a chart that you ordered this test, you know, so they know that it was a medical decision that you ordered this test. Okay. Well, sir, if we've covered everything, is there any information about looking you up, contacting you if they want to get a hold of you for your services? Is there any social media yeah, yeah, you want to talk about? Ab absolutely. Ghealthcare.com is our website. You know, we're affiliated with the Chapman Law Group, which is, you know, one of the best healthcare legal firms, you know, in, in the country. Mr. Ron Chapman II, you know, very, very involved in the recent Supreme Court decisions, you know, Ruan, and which basically made it a little bit harder for the government to come after you for drug trafficking when you had no criminal intent to drug traffic. You know, you're just trying to help patients, which is probably about 99.9% .9 of the people that we deal are good, honest prescribers, good, honest practitioners that were trying to do the right thing for their patients. You know, if anything they did wrong, it was just being a little naive, which is not a crime and shouldn't be a crime. Because, you know, trying to help somebody out, you know, should never be a crime, you know, and especially in the United States of America. 100%. No. I mean, just like I was just talking about, I thought I was doing my due diligence. I was putting, I checked, yeah. but just to come to find out that there is an electronic footprint. So that was my naive. So I, it's 100%. And, but that's why we do shows like this is yeah. hopefully the people out there are going to learn something. So, well, so what, what we do real quick, Tom, is we do a, a front to back door inspection. You know, if we're not, if I'm not there helping, you know, the attorneys build your defense case, you know, if you're not in, actually in trouble. And I actually recommend more so doing this before you get into trouble. You know, unfortunately, you know, you know, a lot of our clients, you know, call after they get into trouble and then they're like, well, I need a compliance plan. I need this. And it yeah. still helps. Don't get me wrong. There's a Department of Justice memo out there that says if even if you put a compliance plan in place after you get in trouble, they still have to give you the points. They still have to give you the credit for doing that because you're trying to do the right you're thing. You're trying to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it helps regardless. But, you know, if you're going to prescribe controlled substances and help patients, then you need to have this stuff in place prior to getting in trouble, prior to the government looking at it. You need to have a compliance plan in place. You need to have the right documentation, the right controlled substance agreement, 
the right checks and balances as far as diversion and aberrant behavior. You need to have all this stuff in place prior to the government coming in. And that's something that we specialize in. You know, we go in and do a front to back door inspection of the practice. We look at everything, you know, so we'll look at, you know, charts. We'll look at documentation. We'll train staff on identifying aberrant behavior and diversion and also documentation. You know, we can set up a compliance plan. We can train the staff on what a compliance plan entails. We can help write a compliance manual for the practice and even tell you, you know, how to, con- how to conduct compliance meetings and compliance investigations, et cetera. We even do things as, you know, where we contract with businesses to, for me to be their compliance officer. There are several practices right now that contract with me to be their compliance officer. So anytime a compliance complaint comes in, it comes directly to me and I investigate it. That way there's, they have nothing, no prejudice, no favorites, no nothing. You yeah. know, and, yeah. you know, and, and that's a little above and beyond, but, you know, for people that's trying to obviously do the right thing and people in high risk categories, like, you know, pain management, yeah, for uh, sure. uh, you know, addiction treatment, you know, suboxone, things like that. You know, sometimes you have to have that extra safeguards, unfortunately. I would say if you have an X waiver, I would definitely be recommending if Absolutely. you have an X waiver and you're using it consistently, you had better be dotting all your I's and crossing all your T's. So yeah. for sure. I do. Thank you for your time. We're going to go ahead and get off here for the night, but do not be shocked if we have you back for a round two when Ben is finally let out of the closet. He may have some questions to ask, and I'm sure we're going to get a lot of feedback from a healthcare provider. So don't be surprised in a couple of months if we're not like, hey, you, you want to pop on the show again? Hey, I'll be happy to. I'm always happy to help with the people that help us. swearing just to pass the time Lately I see why I am alone I caught some road bridge and I thought of you And all the many times